0: Welcome to Integrated Brain Health. My name is Dr. Robert Coben. I'm a clinical neuropsychologist and am board certified in QEG technology and neuromodulation. This is our Neuroscience Rounds podcast. You will get a glimpse into our training programs where we talk about neuroscience, technology, neurofeedback, neuropsychology, and other related matters. We hope this helps with your knowledge base and ability to intervene and help patients successfully. On to the podcast.
1: Hello, welcome to Neuroscience Rounds. This is round five of the Chemical Senses. I'm Dr. Christy Snyder calling. So we're gonna get into smell and taste today. This is the inside of your head. Um, You have here, this is the opening to eustachian tube, which goes to your ear whenever you have to pop your ear. That's that, um, getting the pressure right in your middle ear. Not important for smell and taste though. Whenever you smell something, it goes up through the nose. It goes up through your nose into this area here, which is the olfactory epithelium. It's about five square centimeters. Um, it goes in and out of the cribriform plate, which is this paper thin sheet of bone right here. And then above that, you have the olfactory bulb. So now I'm going to go through the different parts of cells in the olfactory epithelium. So uh, whenever you smell, you have molecules from the actual thing that you're smelling, so warm chocolate chip cookies, part of that cookie is coming up into your nose, and you're actually smelling the actual molecule from that cookie. Um, So those are the odorants here. Then we have this mucus lining, and that helps to dissolve the molecules, so that they can be received by the olfactory neural receptors here. We have some basal cells that are up here and these are basically stem cells undergo mitosis to replace your olfactory receptor cells about every month or two. Then you have the Bauman's glands here that um, make the mucus and then you have again you have these uh, olfactory receptor neurons and you have about 400 different kinds. So in the eyes we talked about cones, there's only three different kinds of cones, but for smells we have about 400 different kinds and each one uh, responds to a different protein. Um, And so uh, the pattern of stimulation that these 400 cells get, gives you the roughly one trillion smells that we can discriminate. Okay, so you smell a molecule, and it comes up into your nose. How does it produce an action potential? Well, it comes in and it is uh, grabbed by a G-proton coupled receptor here. Then it goes and it starts a kind of a chemical reaction that turns ATP into cyclic AMP, which opens a cation channel. And then that opens up and it lets in um, calcium and um, sodium. And it comes in and depolarizes the cell and it causes an action potential. Whenever an action potential is um, elicited, it goes up into uh, the olfactory bulb, it's the cribriform plate here, your neural cell. And then it goes up into the olfactory bulb. First, it hits the glomerulus, um, which is basically the axon of the olfactory cell and the dendrite of something called a mitral cell hill here. And then it goes down to the olfactory tract. So, there are a lot of different locations in the brain that process smell. So, we'll just kind of go through a few different um, targets here. So, first, you have the olfactory cortex, which is in the temporal lobe, which is the paraform cortex. And this is where you have your conscious perception of smell. You also have the hippocampus. It's not exactly the hippocampus. It's really the entorhinal cortex, which is the interest of the hippocampus, but also the hippocampus, which gives you your olfactory memory. So here's a fun little extra for studying. If you're ever studying with a certain smell, you can like have lavender or something, and you study with that smell. If you take the test and you also have a lavender smell, then it'll help cue those memories and help you um, take better tests. And then you had the emotional responses. So you had the um, hypothalamus, and then you had the amygdala. Um, so this is very kind of evolutionarily important for detection of threats. So this is for other animals that have a better sense of the smell than us, but so they can smell something and know if they need to fight or if they need to flee. Um, also for us, the amygdala plays a role in anxiety. So if there was a very traumatic experience and you had a certain smell um, that was, you know, at your trauma. Then, if you smell it again, that could trigger um, anxiety. Um, you also have a region in the orbital frontal region uh, that kind of gives reward and value. So, you smell a chocolate chip cookie, and you're like, "That is a high value item for sure." So, I don't want to go through a few um, causes that can make us lose our ability to smell. That's called anosmia. So one of the main um, reasons that we lose smell is trauma to the face. So this could be a traumatic brain injury, you get punched in the face, or you hit your head or something. Um, one reason reasons why this causes anosmia is because this, so this is again, your curbiform plate here, and you have all your neural going up through it to the olfactory bulb. If you have an insult to the face, then it could cause to shear those neurons, and that would definitely stop uh, signals from going up to the brain. You can also have damage to those areas that I just talked about, that process smell. Um, you can have nasal polyps, uh, which grow when you have sinuses or allergy problems, and they can obstruct um, this, the molecules from going into and getting uh, processed. Um, also, when you had them removed, that could cause uh, you to lose your sense of smell. I had sinus surgery and lost my sense of smell for a month. Everything tasted like bland mashed potatoes. Anyways. <laughs> Okay, you can also have disorders and disease that cause anosmia. So you have aging or age-related degeneration. So approximately 10% of those who are 65 and older, uh, 80% of those who are 80 and older, men more than women. Um, basically, you have—I um, told you about how those uh, olfactory cells regenerate with the stem cells. That slows down as you get older, and then you have reduced activation of those specific brain regions. So you have the piriform cortex, amygdala, and no rhinal cortex. Um, also, you reduce volume of the olfactory bulb. You can also have Parkinson's. Um, so this is pretty interesting. So about 85% of patients lose their sense of smell about four to six years before they get the motor symptoms. So it's a good kind of triggering symptom here. So basically, Parkinson's is characterized by loss of dopamine, and this is substantia nigra, which is in the basal ganglia. But you also have a lot of dopamine um, action going on in the sense of smell in the pathway. So you had dopamine that's produced in an olfactory bulb, and you also get projections there. And so when you uh, lose the dopamine pathway, then that also affects your olfactory. So, yeah, and you have reduced connectivity among those areas in the brain, that process smell. Um, Also Alzheimer's, uh, about 85% of those patients lose their sense of smell. Um, Basically, you get those plaques that are characteristic of Alzheimer's. Um, that affect the olfactory pathway. You can also lose your sense of smell if you have a cold or a flu. Um, basically, um, usually what happens is you just have a lot of mucus in there and then the um, odorants have to travel a longer distance to get to the sensory receptors. So that's why it's kind of blocked or your whole is you have inflammation. You just can't breathe anything in. So that will definitely do it. Um, also, because of the way it's set up with the olfactory bulb, this is a kind of an entryway for viruses to get to the brain where they can avoid the blood-brain barrier. So um, whenever you have viruses that can get into the actual brain, this is one of their favorite entryways. So a very scary thing that was done in the 1930s is to um, help prevent the spread of polio in children. They would cauterize the olfactory bulb of children, um, which is awful. Um, I don't know which, well, I guess polio is worse, but um, when you don't have a sense of smell for your whole life that's also been linked to depression and can you imagine never smelling chocolate chip cookies awful okay so obviously the elephant in the room is what about COVID so a lot of people are talking about the loss of sense of smell for COVID and in fact about 86 percent of COVID patients lose their sense of smell and um, some of the things I read so this is a better indicator of COVID than the fever checks that we're all doing so we had little stent squares or something that we could give people that would actually be a better indicator. Um, But what happens here is, um, doesn't actually affect the olfactory neurons, but they're supporting cells. So I talked a little bit earlier about how there's myelin on neurons. it's like a fatty insulation layer that helps move the electricity down the axon so that you can um, have an action potential. So you have a similar thing here with olfactory and sheathing cells. And they just kind of help move information along the um, olfactory receptors. What happens is those cells express ACE2 and TMPRSS2, which are surface proteins. And those are targets for COVID-2 to latch onto. So it latches onto those and destroys those. And when you lose um, the supporting cells, the information can't get to the brain. And so you lose your sense of smell. This is also why children um, aren't as susceptible to COVID is because they have fewer of these ACE2 proteins. So less than 10, you have very few of these proteins, but the older you get, the more ACE proteins you have, and that's how you get more susceptible to it. So this is how they think most of the anosmia happens for COVID. Um, There are some people who say that they um, don't don't have it return. So some people think that maybe it can go all the way and get to the actual brain and affect um, some regions, but that's kind of in question and still being studied. So what they do know is there's definitely this happening. Um, with ACE2 receptors. So I'll talk about some special cases of smell. Pheromones. So pheromones are chemicals that affect the behavior of other members of your species. So one kind of pheromone is the alarm pheromone that insects have. So if you get stung by one bee the whole crew is coming to get you and that's because of pheromones. So they kind of follow it. Ants have um, direction pheromones so that when one goes and finds food they kind of follow the trail of the other. Kind of the more common ones that we're aware of are for sexual traction and reproduction. So for example, the urine of male lions triggers the release, the release of luteinizing hormone, which is, triggers ovulation in lionesses. Um, so humans, as I mentioned before, we don't have great sense of smell, but we can uh, perceive pheromones, not consciously, I guess perceives are wrong, we can process pheromones. Um, and we can also, some people think we can smell kinship So they've had some interesting studies where um, they have, you know, give someone a shirt and play basketball and come back and have their family members smell it versus other people smell it. And you will find the odor of your kin uh, more aversive than those who are not your kin, especially those if you have a compatible immune system, you'll find that, you might even find it pleasing. Um, So this is, the idea is that it was reducing, Um, you know, inbreeding, Um, we didn't know who was related to who. So that's kind of interesting. Also, taste. So I mentioned when I had my sinus surgery I couldn't taste anything for a while and that's because about 80% of taste is uh, actually smell. So that leads us into our talk about taste. I'm sure a lot of people have seen this image before. Yes, have you seen this where there's certain regions of your tongue that are sensitive to certain kinds of tastes. that we've seen this like in middle school or whatever. This is a big fat lie. <laughs> um, there aren't certain regions of your tongue that are uh, sensitive to certain tastes. You have the um, taste all over your tongue. It's actually a, a anyway. another lie is those bumps on your tongue. those are not taste buds. <laughs> uh, those are what we call papilla. And on the papilla are taste buds. And in the taste buds are taste cells and uh, the taste cells are uh, receptive to different kinds of tastes. So you have some for sweet, some for salt, and some for bitter. So on your tongue you have the bumps. On the bumps you have the taste buds. In the taste buds you have receptors for different kinds of taste. So just some fun facts about taste buds. So you're born with about 10,000 but you lose about half of them by the time you're in your 20s. And this is an evolutionarily beneficial thing here. So Children have more taste buds, and they're more sensitive to bitter. And that's because things that are poisonous tend to be bitter. So when we were out killing mammoths and hunting and gathering, um, we didn't know which plants were edible, which plants were not edible. So children are very sensitive to bitter, so they don't eat things that aren't good for us. Presumably, by the time you're in your 20s, you know what's food and what isn't food. So then you lose the taste buds—about uh, half of them—by the you're in your 20s. Um, Like I said, each taste bud has these taste cells, about 50 to 150 of them. Um, And they are regenerated about every two weeks. So you burn your tongue, you should be coming back in about a week or two. Not like if you lose your uh, nose receptors, that's about a month or two. Okay, so you have different kinds of papilla on your tongue. You had the folate, um, which actually children have, but disappear as we age. So they're on the sides of your tongue and they believe they play a role in the um, perception of milk. Um, And then you have fungiform papillae on the anterior two-thirds of the tongue, so this part here, and that's what we typically associate with taste that have all the taste cells on them. You have filiform papillae, which increase friction. So when you lick that ice cream cone and some of the ice cream comes up on your tongue, that's because of these papillae or kind of causing the friction. Um, I believe this is what in cats makes it so scratchy. Now you also have um, taste buds on your epiglottis and pharynx, which I didn't know before. I started investigating this, so that thought that was interesting. Okay, so each taste bud, as mentioned before, has cells for five different tastes. So you have the sweet, which are your saccharides and your oses, fructose, lactose, and sucrose. You have your salty, which is sodium. Sour, which are acids, citric acid, think of lemons. Bitter, so broccoli, this is why kids don't like broccoli. mommy, which is a more recent one, um, is your savory rich meat and cheese, um, kind of your monosodium glutamate, so MSG. Um, and these are the five tastes that we have that we process from the uh, gust- gustatory system. Now there are actually other tastes uh, that aren't perceived gustation, but actually felt by this somatosensory system. So You hear a lot about mouthfeel and textures, that's the somatosensory, but also spicy. We think this is a taste, it's actually not. Um, We, it stimulates the hot thermoreceptors and the pain receptors, the capsaicin, like in peppers. So this is actually a feel and not a taste. And then you have menthol, which stimulates the cold receptors. So that's actually a feel and not a taste. Um, Okay, so I'm gonna very briefly talk about how um, action potentials are listed. I won't go into too, too much detail here, but so you have sweet, bitter, and umami, and it's on this side of the figure here. Uh, they're kind of proceed uh, or received the same transduced or transduced kind of the similar way. So basically, it stimulates a cell to release calcium, and when that happens, it starts a chain reaction that releases serotonin and ATP into the um, synapse here, and then that causes an action potential to be sent. Then you have salty, so there are some channels that are particular to sodium. And as sodium goes in, it opens the channels, it's over here, opens the channels uh, for calcium to be let in. And again, when calcium comes in, it depolarizes the cell and it causes these vesicles to move down and release neurotransmitter to the synapse. It causes an action potential. And then you have sour, so you have acidic proteins that are high in protons and they block the potassium from leaving the cell, which opens up a calcium channel. Um, And again, as calcium comes in, it depolarizes and causes the action potential. Um, So the pathway for taste, um, the interesting thing about this is that there are three uh, nerves that take taste sensations back to the brain. So you have the facial nerve of seven, nine, and ten. So you have, um, this is nine, takes the anterior two-thirds, here, back, and anyway, Um, different nerves take it back, and it goes into the solitary nucleus and the medulla oblongata, up through the thalamus, and to the gustatory cortex, which is in the insula. And that's where you have the conscious perception of taste. You also have other targets like the amygdala thalamus, has the emotional quality of taste, and the hippocampus, which has the memories of taste. Okay, so now for a few special cases of taste. Cravings. Why do you want a certain thing at a certain time? Well, one common um, theory is a nutrient deficiency. So animals, the idea is that animals tend to crave foods that are high in the nutrients that they're lacking specifically salt. Um, as you saw before, salt and sodium plays a really big role in action potentials, and it's very important for a lot of processes. So it's important to get your salt in, but not too much for your blood pressure. Um, so there is this case of this child that had an adrenal cortex tumor, and that kind of threw off their ability to maintain their salt balance. And this kid, when he was given um, access to any kind of food as much as he wants, he constantly went for salty, and um, so they thought it was because you couldn't balance salty. Well, it's possible that maybe this kid just likes salty foods. So they did a follow-up study with rats where they removed the adrenal cortex and they showed a similar preference for salty foods. Um, they also found that the salt receptors were less sensitive to salt. So if you perceive less salt, then you're gonna eat more salt. Um, also, the idea is that this is what's behind pregnancy cravings. So um, if there's something that the baby needs that you're not getting, that's probably why people Crave, you know, pickles and ice cream. Um, it's the idea, anyway. Um, also, an interesting theory is the gut microbiome. So, small plug for our blog. Um, I do have a blog post about this. We would head on to the website and look at it. The idea here is that if you have a nice, balanced um, diet with Mediterranean foods, you have a lot of different things, then there's lots of different kinds of bacteria in your gut. And it's like a battlefield there where they're all kind of keeping each other in check. Um, However if you have a western diet where you're eating lots of processed um, sugar and flour and uh, fried foods and stuff and you have an off balance so you have more of a certain kind of bacteria and so the balance is thrown off so you have one kind that's kind of running amok and the idea here is that those bacteria if they feed on like sugar for example they'll actually um, go in and change your cravings and make you crave more sugar to feed the bacteria in your gut. So it's kinda like invasion of the body snatchers here. So if you don't want the bacteria in your gut telling you what to eat, you should have a balanced meal. So again, I have a blog post about that on the website if you wanna read more about it. Okay, taste aversions. So this is very interesting. Um, So this is where it's a conditioned response where animals associate a specific food with a negative visceral response, so vomiting. So it's a very unique form of conditioning that occurs in only one trial um, and it can be as much as 24 hours between the food ingestion and the vomiting and it can last a lifetime. So usually with conditioning you need repeated trials it needs to be very close together so you can associate a stimulus with a response, but in this case it's not actually what happens. So they did some interesting studies with rats again. So they paired sugar water with a tone and a mild poison that caused them um, to vomit. And then they found that only the taste became aversive, but not the tone. So their body was associating the taste and the vomiting, not the tone and the vomiting. They did a follow-up study where they uh, paired sugar water with tone and a little foot shock. In this case, only the tone became aversive, not the taste. So this demonstrates that your body It intrinsically links stomach issues and vomiting with taste. So that you know, uh, it's important to know if you eat poison to not do that again in the future. Um, What's interesting is what gets associated. So it might not actually be that the food you're eating is aversive, it might be another cause, but the body will still link it, or the brain will still link it. So there's this uh, interesting case about this guy who's eating a filet mignon with bernet sauce. Sounds pretty tasty. And then six hours later, you get the stomach flu. And so then after that, he was never able to eat Brene sauce again, but his stomach flu or the vomiting had nothing to do with what he ate. It was just the stomach flu. So sometimes your brain will make associations where there actually isn't any, and then you're stuck with not having Brene sauce for the rest of your life, (laughs) which is kind of sad. Um, Okay. Uh, And I think this might be mediated by the amygdala or the insular cortex. Okay, so I also want to talk about um, how other senses play a role in your sense of taste. So I showed um, at the earlier rounds about the McGurk effect, about how what you hear depends on what you see and what uh, phonemes people are making with their mouth. There are similar the similar thing happens with taste. Um, so one role is vision. So there's this um, great I don't know, it an experiment or a demonstration where they have jello, it's completely flavorless. They have like yellow, red, blue, and purple. And they give it to participants and they have them taste it and say, what does this taste like? And they'll say the red tastes sweet like berries and the yellow tastes sour like lemons. Well, that's basically how we've been conditioned to believe that things that are red are flavored like berries and things that are yellow are flavored like lemons. Um, So when you see it, and then based on our own experience, we associate that to be a taste, but that might actually not be what's happening on our tongues. so, I actually bought some Fruit Loops if I was going to do a demonstration to see if y'all can taste different tastes, but the different colors of Fruit Loops. But all Fruit Loops taste the same. And so, I didn't, anyway, um, mm-hmm. if it wasn't COVID out, then that would have been a good demonstration. Um, okay. So, I, uh, again, my so sensory, there's a mouthfeel, there's textures, The things don't have the right textures. They just don't taste right. Um, audition. So, this was an interesting study I read. So, um, they had participants uh, eat chips, and they rated how crispy they are or whatever, and some people thought they were stale. But if you had headphones on, uh, like crunching on some really crunchy chips, they actually thought the stale chips tasted better because you heard the crisp. they are like, they must be crispy and delicious. So that was interesting. And also personal beliefs. So if you believe something tastes better, then you will rate it as tasting better. So you can have um, the price of wine. So like I can say this is a really expensive wine, or this is you know box wine. And you know, like, oh, well, this expensive one tastes better than the box one, even if they're the same kind of wine. So it's a lot of our own perceptions we put on it. It's, again, they did a study with bottle and tap water, um, where people thought that the, that the bottled water tastes better than the tap when it was actually the same water. So a lot of your personal beliefs can affect how you taste. So that was our brief tour into the chemical senses of taste and smell. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you for joining us today. Feel free to subscribe to the Neuroscience Realms podcast for future episodes. You might also enjoy our sister podcast, Let's Head On, with myself and Dr. Ann Stevens, where we discuss the interaction between neuroscience, neuropsychology, and physical and mental well-being. Please feel free to reach out to us at IntegrateBrainHealth.com.